Hey, and we're packed. We're back by popular demand, and I suppose also obligation because I call it the last one, part one. I did not think this was going to take multiple parts, but if this is going to be the format this takes, then I guess I'll just go full ramble, and we'll cover every goddamn topic I feel like covering, and it'll take however many parts it, it does, because it, this feels good, and I'm enjoying doing this, and this is what I like to do, is do these extensive discussions on things at times, and it seems people are game for it, because not only did the last one get more views than the finale of my actual Let's Play of the game, but... Uh, it looks like it's got like a 98% positive ratio on responses so far, so that's a good sign. Uh, it's funny, because I beat, I beat Witcher 3 on Death March difficulty, but it was really only the Andromeda playthrough that felt like a Death March by the end, huh? So let's get one thing out of the way. It's kind of tangentially related, but this is apparently a podcast about tangentially related things anyway, and uh, I'm sure we'll be going on to tangents into the, into the previous Mass Effect games, and this one also, just like we did last time, while also spending a half an hour on minor details, because I will just dwell on whatever I feel like. But people have been asking me about Anthem, the new and upcoming Bioware game. Uh, I don't have a lot to offer, on that game, mainly because it's not out yet, and when a game's not out, I generally try not to expose myself too much to it, and I try not to spoil things about it, and then just experience what happens. Am I worried? Yes. Do I think it will cause this kind of discussion? No. For two reasons. One, uh, it's not the fourth game in a franchise, let alone a franchise that has spawned, like, uh, comic books and spin-off things and a uh, hundred and novels and, like, tons of other tangentially related things that keep expanding it on top of the four games. Like, uh, Andromeda had a universe to screw up and details and so on. Because Mass Effect was a detail-oriented universe, and so when it waded through swinging wildly, uh, there was a lot of branches to catch. Anthem is a new thing. So, whatever it is, it can't offend an existing thing, aside from the concept of Bioware fans, of course, and people expecting Bioware games, which those people might be disappointed by what ends up happening. Because the other thing is, uh, the other reason why I don't think it'll spawn this kind of discussion is because it it's a multiplayer, cooperative, shooter RPG, which heavy air quotes there massive infinite air quotes around rpg we'll see i would love for it to be a real rpg really i would and uh i'm interested in seeing what they might do that might make it count as being an rpg uh interestingly like specifically the bioware or at least some, some other studio called Bioware, because saying Bioware is meaningless now because so many other so many separate companies and groups of people are all called Bioware. They're all working in parallel with each other while, and stuff like that. That's such a mess, and who the hell knows? But uh, some version of Bioware somewhere made a game called Old Republic. Not to be confused with Knights of the Old Republic, but it's also reasonable to confuse it because they're the same universe, both being Star Wars and the same continuity of a series of Bioware games on, on Star Wars. But... Old Republic specifically was the one that, instead of getting KOTOR 3, we got an MMO. Still not happy about that. But 
they did something interesting, which is that they did multiplayer conversations. It was stupid, like really stupid, but they tried like hats off and applause for, uh, in- injecting Bioware style dialogue trees into an MMORPG and then letting people that are in a multiplayer party together, essentially like roll the dice quite literally for those that don't know, Old Republic had the same dialogue trees that old Bioware games do and ha- and, older, and the Knights of the Old Republic games did. But if you were in a party and it wasn't like a quest that was specific to you, like your specific uh, single player storyline, if it was any sort of general thing like a random quest or a raid or something, whenever you were picking dialogue options or making decisions, because there were decisions in that game, uh, you everyone in your party would pick a choice and then it would do a dice roll for everyone, like 1 to 100. And whoever had the highest number, their choice was the canonical one that actually got read out by the voice actor and went forward. And so the cutscenes themselves were kind of neat because whoever chimed, like whoever won the dice roll, they'd be the, it would cut, the camera would cut to them and they would say the response and the conversation would continue. And it was at its best, it was really cool because it would organically jump between all these different characters as if they were all there instead of the usual Bioware thing where uh, only protagonist man is the real one that's in the conversation and everybody else, the two or three party members, are usually just sitting in the background until they have, unless they have very specific pre-scripted dialogue. So having a situation where you have four protagonist man people competing against each other uh, could lead to some interesting dialogue and sort of like a Guardians of the Galaxy ensemble cast sort of feeling that was cool, and I liked that. But it's not like who's going to pick a quirky response to a situation. It was you were, actually, you were making actual decisions in those situations. Like, do we blow up the ship and kill everybody in a Sith kind of way, or do we save all the babies like a Jedi? So... The fact that uh, if your party wasn't a cohesive moral unit, massively divergent uh, dialogue choices could be picked uh, from decision to decision. And then everyone canonically is just stuck doing that thing was weird, like really weird because like you would just get stuck doing evil things as a good guy or good things as an evil guy because the party member who felt like doing that stuff won. And it's blah, it, it, it didn't really work on a storytelling perspective necessarily, but it was a cool attempt and at the very least, that does make that work more as an RPG than most MMOs are, which is fetch quest games where you just do tasks and, yeah, they're just open world games. They're GTA with swords and magic, essentially, where you just do preordained tasks over and over again, but we call it an RPG because reasons. Um, so after what they did with Old Republic, Anthem might do something interesting, too, and I look forward to seeing what their solution is. But... I can't help but feel like the more likely thing is going to be that it's just going to be like Borderlands and Destiny, which, for the record, are not RPGs. They're not. They're this sub-thing that we have agreed on as a community for some reason to call RPGs for some reason. By the way, this is not completely tangentially unrelated to uh, Andromeda, because it touches on some elements of Andromeda itself, and also just the concept of RPGs, which is kind of important to nail down a little bit, because it's something I care about a lot, and it bothers me. And to be clear, being an RPG or not being an RPG is not a judgment of of quality. You can have the RPG tag stripped from your game, and it can be equally as good as it was before it was stripped from a game. Like, that's not what I mean. I love tons of non-RPGs, and that's fine. 
in fact, the the distinction of whether or not I think they're, they're RPGs doesn't matter in this case because I quite like Destiny. I have a grand old time playing it, and I quite dislike Borderlands and don't like playing it. The, the, whether or not I count them as RPGs is irrelevant. But it's important to highlight this element here because they're not RPGs. They're games that have level-up systems and Skinner's boxes, and that's important. For those who don't know, because I don't think we don't think we've covered it in this particular sub forum, but we did do an entire podcast on Skinner boxes in the in the Four Nerds Save the Universe podcast thing. Skinner's box was this thing where there was this. Okay, I, I'm going to butcher the shit out of this because I'm not going to re- sit here and research it right now on the spot, but because I the details are lost a little bit. But essentially, there was a psychological professor or researcher or something that would put animals in this case in an operant conditioning chamber. And they'd be in this cage, and if they pressed a button, they'd get food. And they re- he realized that if they, gave, if they gave you food every time you pressed the button, then you would only press it enough to get fed, and then you'd move on. Which, sure, makes sense. But if you gave it a random chance of giving you food, and sometimes it didn't give you food, or most times it didn't give you food, but occasionally it gave you food, that little pigeon or rat or whatever would press the shit out of that button, and they'd get fed like crazy, and they'd press it way too much, and then even after they were fed, they would keep pressing it, and like it was, it's an operant conditioning chamber. It's a Skinner's box. It's gambling, literally. <laughs> uh, well, not 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 necessarily gambling. That you're only, it's only really losing time in favor of more food, but a random chance of more food. Uh, this is how many video games work. You do a thing over and over again, and there's a random chance of getting good or bad things. You kill dudes in Diablo, and a confetti pinata monster... Like, every enemy in Diablo is a pinata. And confetti weapons and items spew out of them when you hit them. And they rain all over the floor, and you get 50 garbage items and uncommons and gray items and bullshit that just clouds the screen. But every now and then you get that vertical beam and that's where the endorphins shoot out. Cause you're like, Oh my God, I got the vertical beam God Ray. That means that it's a legendary and you go identify that legendary and you go through the loop of figuring out if it's a good legendary for you. And which is what, which is by the way is why Bioware game, uh, Blizzard games reward you more and more frequently now than they used to. Cause shit used to be hard to get these legendaries, but now you get a legendary every time you got freaking play a Diablo game. But Whatever. Uh, I, I'm not going to complain about getting to the top of a loot grind easier because I don't like the loot grind in the, the first place. But a loot grind is not an RPG. It is just a mechanic designed to make you keep playing a game. It's Hearthstone. It's Facebook games. It's anything that wants you to... It's Candy Crush. Candy Crush is not a fair video game, in case we're unclear on that somehow. Candy Crush is supposed to make you fail... Like first, it's easy at first to get you hooked for a while, and and I've played this by the way just to re- to figure out what this game was like because people kept talking about it. It's designed to make you feel like it's easy to get through it for a long ass time, and then eventually it gets really hard. But then you have an occasional chance of essentially RNG winning the match for you because you have no control over what gems fall in when you destroy things. They just fall in at random, but out of nowhere, a bullshit, ridiculous combo will just spew across the screen, and magical music plays, and oh my god, that was amazing. Congrats to me. Uh, that that random chance of success and feeling good, whether it be a, a gambling for success at a game to move on to the next level, or gambling to get better weapons, or gam or just just fighting things to periodically get told that you're doing good all the time. All these things are for various forms of Skinner boxes. Like that's one of the one, that's one of the systems that comes up in uh, Elder Scrolls is that Elder Scrolls has. 500 different skills so no matter what you're doing all the time you always feel like you're progressing at something and they make sure to tell you every time you progress 
They don't let that happen in the background in some menu you have to check. It goes on the screen. And as each game comes out, the announcement of your progression gets more and more dramatic. Like it used to be like a tiny text feed in the corner, I believe, during a Morrowind. By the time you get to Skyrim, it's a full screen unveiling like a THX logo across the screen to tell you that you got 37 abjuration or whatever the fuck. Uh, fuck, I don't think that's even one of them. It's fine. Conjuration, athletics, then they just keep adding more skills and they keep announcing your progress. That's why Borderlands just keeps layering on more and more progression systems where it's like, now, now you got badass points. It's another thing that also levels up. Now you have 1% better crit chance and or 0.1% better crit chance. It's like incredibly minor upgrades, but it's another thing where they can celebrate that you've progressed all the time. And Destiny has its loot drops and... Fortnite is a nightmare of having like just try opening Fortnite I dare you if you have access to it there are like 17 separate progression systems because the game just wants to make you constantly feel like you're progressing in some way told to the point of literally having pinatas which kind of breaks the metaphor when you're just actually doing it but okay but the point is I wanted I want to invite you all to explore the concept of role playing games because there Go play Dungeons and Dragons. Find friends that know Dungeons and Dragons. See if you can sit in on a session or even join them and learn the game a bit. Or if you don't want to do that, I have examples for you. Uh, on my channel, there's a series called Dungeons and Dragons Grave of Man. Check it out. And if you don't want my version or you think that this is plugging or whatever, go check out somebody else's stuff. You can check out Critical Role from Geek and Sundry. That's, uh, Mac, that's Matt Mercer. And a bunch of voice actors getting together, so it's. I'm sure it's good. I've never watched it, but it, it's supposed. To, it gets. It gets. It gets recommended. Recommended the most. There's Splattercats, D and D channel. Roll for it. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, Team Four Star. The people that do Dragon Ball Z abridged, which are also voice actors at this point. They also do a D and D campaign. I want you to, for science, just tell me what the point of those sessions are. These D and D campaigns. Because this is the foundation of our modern understanding of role-playing and what this concept is. Look at what these games are and what you do in them and what the point of them is. And you will find that numbers are not used the same way they are in video games that are called RPGs that are not RPGs. Because yes, you do have like... A charisma score with a modifier. And when you do a thing, you might roll a dice for that to happen and so on. But making numbers bigger is not the point of D&D. At least not most of the time. Generally, you are in a scenario with your friends. And you, you're playing a bunch of characters. And those characters have personalities. <clears throat> they have personalities and quirks and allegiances and alignments of being good or evil and lawful and chaotic and they have these hopefully flaws of some kind and they have a class and they have equipment but the point isn't to make that class better and the equipment gooder or whatever all the time like that's not that's not the primary goal the point is that you have this complicated rule system and every character has a bunch of distinguishing features like their class and their skills and their prepared spells and their charisma score and so on and so forth, their proficiency bonus, their level, because those are the universe. Because the diff the di what, what makes D&D uh, &D separate from just pure make-believe is that it has rules. Because otherwise you have the issue of like, 
I got you. Nuh-uh, I got a super force field. Well, I got a force field piercing laser. And, like, that bullshit where, like, five-year-olds are yelling at each other and playing make-believe, which, you know, fine. They're Let them experience childhood. <laughs> but uh, uh, in D&D, you have a bunch of rules and and things that go on there because that adds stakes and weight to everything. You have hit points. When you're out of hit points, you die and or you go unconscious and you can eventually become dead if no one else uh, takes care of you at that point or some scenario or storytelling thing doesn't save you at that point. Like You, as a character, have stakes. If you get crit for all of your health and you're down, you could lose that character forever, permanently. So, like, you care about all of these rules and these things, and, like, you, you have strengths and weaknesses because those affect your decisions and the scenario. And things have stakes because you actually have to roll a dice, and there is a percent chance of things happening. It's like the XCOM system of, like, you have an 80% chance of shooting that dude. That's not 100. Do you take it? Or those situations where you're totally fucked and you have a 20% chance of hitting, but, like, if you don't take the shot then someone's going to die. So do you take the shot anyway, even though it's probably not going to hit and you just go for it and things go bad and maybe you get hit by Overwatch and there's 500 variables. Like those are, those are stakes and tension. Like those are interesting. And you'll see when you watch me play with Bird and Shell and Wander or you play, watch any of these other campaigns or you play it yourself, you'll, you'll realize the point of D&D and role playing is to play a role you inhabit a character, the character has strengths and weaknesses and goals and vices and so on, and you play through scenarios in a form of what's essentially improv, and you try to succeed, hopefully, at whatever you're trying to do, and that is the point. The numbers, the, me- the mechanics, those are all things that facilitate your investment in this universe and what you do. Whereas, oh, by the way, this is going on way longer than I thought it would, but fuck it at this point. We're already in it. <laughs> uh, that stuff determines your investment. So that's not just make-believe or like, I got a, sh- I got a shield-piercing laser and all that stuff that where kids just make up stuff and keeps arm- keep arms racing and everything like that. And the act of progressing your character and getting more stuff, finding a magic sword that's possessed by the soul of a horse, or hitting level 10 and getting a different form of shape-shifting or whatever the hell. That stuff is both your reward, but also further customization. It lets you more and more inhabit the complicated role of your particular character by escalating things over time. And also feels like an earned reward because you probably played for like four hours or maybe even more you might have played over the course of multiple weeks of sessions to get that one extra level and that one level feels like it's a notch on your belt that's genuinely earned and it's part of your story and that's the important thing is that this 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 arc is part of a story and the level ups and loots are all background details to thousands of decisions and role-playing borderlands destiny they are shooter campaigns with Skinner Box attached to them. That's all they are. And you can take it or leave it, and you can be a glutton for Skinner Box, like Wanderbot, who just loves to watch numbers go up and kind of mindlessly grind at Warframe all day. But don't mistake games like Warframe and 
Borderlands and Destiny as being RPGs. You do not play a role, at least not any more than you do in any other video game, which I think is part of the reason why we get confused about this for other reasons. Not only is there the trappings of an RPG, RPG elements, we'll call them, the ability to level up and get skill points and stuff like that, but there's the fact that in in every video game you're playing a role, technically, the question is whether or not you have any wiggle room in that role to do things at all. Can you make decisions? In many ways, games like Thief and Dishonored and uh, and System Shock and Deus Ex, which sometimes call themselves RPGs and sometimes don't, are more RPG-like than games that do call themselves RPGs because of the fact that they are games where you make decisions and play a role and ver- and playthroughs vary from person to person. Destiny does not change from person to person. It's not significant that some people have an in- invincibility bubble and some people can have a teleport stab. That is not a significant change. That is exactly as RPG as playing Mad Max or Batman Arkham Asylum or uh, frankly, WB open world games, apparently. Uh, Shadow of Mordor. Watch Dogs has a level up screen and a skill tree. That doesn't make it an RPG. But it's exactly as but these games are exactly as RPG as Destiny and Borderlands are. Games where you make no decisions, where you do preordained tasks and you loot grind and you get arbitrary level ups to get to get into a skill tree. That is not role playing. And you can enjoy it all you want, but that's like that's not what this thing is. And it's important because people that are fans of Bioware games are clearly fans of RPGs because that's all they make. And so that's a so a concern about Anthem is that it might not be a real RPG. And I won't know until I get my hands on it for sure because you can't you can't you can't trust any E3 announcements and promises and what and whatnot. Because E3, according to E3, Mass Effect 1 was a game all about exploration and, un- and uncharted worlds and stuff like that, just like they said about Andromeda. And thankfully, it turned out to be something else that I liked a lot, but it sure as hell was not that game. So, Anthem could be fun. Will it be an RPG? Will it be a universe that I get captivated in? Or will it be another loot grinder? I don't know. And if it is just another multiplayer shooter, then it really comes to down to how much I like the actual shooting, basically. I like Destiny because I like Halo. I wish Destiny was another Halo. Like, not the Halo universe, but I wish that it was just a shooter campaign that you played with your friends because Halo didn't need loot to be good (laughs) and loot would not have improved Halo. But they decided to give it loot for some reason. Fine, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I I don't like loot grinders that... It's a uh, it's a form of just making you play the same content over and over again, which is just a bummer, and that's not a direction I want any franchise to go in necessarily. And in fact, I don't engage in loot grinding in my RPGs. You'll probably notice. Uh, funny how that's there, because people are always say people say really bullshit things. We're like, if you don't like loot grinds, you just don't like RPGs. It's like, no, you just have been misguided about what you think an RPG is. Go play Baldur's Gate or Divinity or Deus Ex or anything that actually has you playing roles and making decisions, whether it be dialogue, rigid dialogue trees like Bioware does it, or much more organic 0451 
things like the old Spyglass games and stuff like that, where or even Dark Souls, where you're actually affecting the world and story in ways that are, instead of being dialogue-driven, are systematic, where you can attack something and that changes a storyline and stuff like that. That is an RPG. But anyway, that was way longer than I thought it was going to be, but I just wanted to comment on Anthem and it turned into that whole discussion, but that's fine. It just means we get more parts out of this, apparently. You're welcome? <laughs> that was... Yeah. I like to... I, I, it's, I hate it when people are like, you don't like grinding? And you don't like loot treadmills? You're clearly not an RPG fan. I'm like, you are a wrong person and it's a problem for my genre that I like because you're ruining it. <laughs> so, first of all, and this might bother you, but I'm going to revisit previous territory. Part of this is because of comments. I've lost track of the original comments a little bit now, but, but back when the original video went up, part one of Mass Effect Andromeda's spoiler cast, I took notes on comments people were making and also just other dis and not all of it was comments but also just other thoughts I had afterwards and so there's actually follow-up to be made on the discussions we had last time uh the geth telescope and the qecs were um not 100% done with them yet and the quarian arc so first of all we talked about the quarian arc and how it doesn't make sense for 500 billion different reasons on a mechanical level i was talking about the logistical levels of like how how you would even make a Quarian arc and why they would make a Quarian arc and so on and so forth and how those all different didn't make sense. Comments quickly pointed out something that made even that was also really important that I skipped over, uh, which is that every arc is run, every arc has a pathfinder, and that pathfinder interfaces with a copy of Sam. Sam is an AI, and the AI is housed on every individual arc that and it interfaces with that particular pathfinder. So each one has its own AI. That means a Quarian Arc would have a Quarian Pathfinder and a Quarian AI. Hmm. Do you see the problem there? Do you? I just... Do I need, do I need to put like a, a spyglass over that particular issue? The fact that the Quarians are entirely defined as a species as being this like forced nomad race because they spoiled their entire original home planet by creating AI. <laughs> And that AI drove them off their home planet and wiped out their society. And now they're essentially like a city floating in space, hoping to one day recapture their their home world and, and endlessly having this feud against their self-created AI. And they're also largely the reason why AI research is illegal throughout the entire galaxy because no one wants to create this problem again, which frankly kind of turns out to be right. Like whether you're pro-Geth or anti-Geth, it's still kind of right in that like the Reapers are also another form of AI that was also here to fuck everyone up. So like the idea that a Quarian would be okay with being a Quarian Pathfinder is like horrifying. And a huge mess. And by the way, just to talk about how badly done this entire Pathfinder situation is and how poorly done the Andromeda Initiative is and so on, AI, AI research is illegal in the Milky Way. And the inclusion of AI in Andromeda Initiative is relatively secret and hush-hush. And no one really knows about it aside from the Pathfinders and the main leadership. 
and it kind of gets revealed as details over time and people aren't super aware of it across the board, which is a plot point in Andromeda because there's an entire side quest chain where uh, there's people that think AI are evil and they're trying to get rid of the AI that's inside you and free you from it because they think that you're being held prisoner by it and so on and so forth, whereas you're you're quite fond of having Sam in your head one way or another in this game. Uh, could you imagine that plot line on the Quarian arc? Because if there was a Quarian arc with a Quarian Pathfinder and everyone suddenly became aware of the fact there was an AI on the ship running everything, um, that ship blows up. <laughs> like, one way or another, emotionally or physically, like, that is a doomed prospect and the dumbest idea ever. And I failed to touch on it because I was disguised. The stupidity of this topic was hidden behind 500 other stupid things so i i didn't peel back enough layers of this goddamn stupid onion to highlight how stupid this other element was which kudos for pointing that out i think uh, i'm pretty sure people pointed that out last time and that wasn't me that thought of it afterwards but yeah that's a big deal which is why it's so frustrating that this like mass effect is a detail-oriented universe i'll highlight that again because it's important because that shows how not detail-oriented this game was, was how willing they are just to throw out this idea of a quarian arc like it's nothing, even though the quarians don't have the resources to make an arc, and they don't have a reason to make an arc, and they have 500 reasons not to make an arc, and also the arc is secretly their enemy because it's full of AI. Like, the fact that they just throw that away at you in a sentence and expect you just to eat it and not question it at all and then move on with your life shows how haphazard uh, Andro... it shows that Andromeda is either super haphazardly handled or it just doesn't care about these kinds of details. And there's a, vi- there's a decent chance that's both. Um, a decent, a reoccurring thing that people bring up is the idea that like Andromeda is a game made by programmers, which sounds about right. It's probably why it's so quest, uh, side quest driven and full of so much disposable content is that the best RPGs have a very strong writer or director presence of some kind, a very strong passion for storytelling and world building to make this whole thing work and feel cohesive and like it has a point to it and so on. Uh, but when you let programmers make a game, they're so busy making the game, like they oftentimes their way of creating content is to create little packages of content that can be slotted in easily because it makes their job easier. And so, and oftentimes they're not really talented writers. So you get very by the numbers side quests of, eh, go here, kill that guy. I made that level already. So let's make a quest that correlates with that particular space where I already occupied, where I already like populated it with enemies and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's filler. It's easy to make. And, and like sub teams can easily do this without, without coordinating with too many people, but it leads to the world being really detached and, and messy and it and uh, we'll get, probably get into that later when I talk about the actual gameplay and actual open world stuff because that's a whole topic of its own with its own bullet points and everything. But like that speaks to how haphazardly the world building and uh, like plot cohesion is that the that the way that the Andromeda and and Dragon Age Inquisition have like such a detached main story and that the uh, so many of the side quests are so self-contained and don't touch anything else and that everything feels so detached and then like Andromeda has so much contradictory lore that is such a mess is likely because of that kind of setup. 
but that's something I don't have a direct insight on, but it seems like a reasonable proposition that people bring up. But then we can talk about the, uh, the Geth telescope again. So we talked before about how the Geth telescope is a weird thing that they hand wave away and doesn't make any sense. But there's additional detail of, like, it didn't have a reason to exist. Like, the Geth telescope serves no purpose in the story of Mass Effect Andromeda. Think about that. All the Geth telescope does is allow them to somehow break time and space to view, to somehow view Andromeda faster by, like, sucking light or something. But as we arrive in Andromeda, we find out that every single planet is poisoned and destroyed and is not habitable. And so the Geth Telescope and all of its information is wrong. So not only is it a self-contradictory nightmare that is unexplained and can't and you can't really make sense of how it how they got it or how it works or any of the other stuff but it's ultimately not actually giving them valuable information it would have actually been easier and more elegant just to be like oh no our information was so out of date because of how far away andromeda is that like we just were wrong about what it's like and oh no bad stuff has happened like Having a death, a Geth telescope that provides this assurance that you can magically see across the galaxy and across to another galaxy instantaneously or whatever, and then having that be wrong anyway, it's like, because uh, in this case, because of the 600 year travel time, like, why? Who cares then? <laughs> like, you introduce this broken plot point that doesn't affect anything. And while we're at it, why can't the, de- why can't the Geth telescope just teleport them to Andromeda? Seriously. Mass Effect relays are instantaneous teleportation. If you're going to break, if you're already going to break the lore and allow the get the, the a Mass Effect relay cluster somehow to become a telescope, why can't you turn it into a Mass Effect cannon that just fires stuff one way, just a one way long distance trip? It honestly wouldn't be that. It wouldn't even. It would actually be almost less of a divergence. This idea that like, yeah, normally Mass Effects are relay to relay, but we wired a bunch of them together and now we can fire you like a cannon but you're not coming back like is that really less reasonable it's it's exactly as reasonable of a lore break as the original thing was and that's a bummer and i i and i i i know this is exhaustive exhausting and redundant how i keep hitting the same points over and over again but it's i want to highlight these because it's important to me to highlight how important details are in the Mass Effect universe. And I am going to highlight that by doing the most annoying thing I could pretty much possibly do, which is I am now going to read the Mass Relay Wikipedia page, the masseffect.wikia.com slash wiki slash mass underscore relay page, or at least excerpts from it, because... The re- I want to po- I want I, I will I'll, I'll get to the reason afterwards. You'll see. Mass relays are mass transit devices scattered throughout the Milky Way, usually located within star systems. They form an enormous network allowing interstellar travel. Hailed as one of the greatest achievements of the extinct Protheans, a mass relay can transport starships instantaneously to another relay within the network, allowing for journeys that would otherwise take years or even centuries with only FTL drives. 
Mass relays consist of two 15-kilometer or 9-mile long curved metal arms surrounded by a revolving, surrounding a set of revolving gyroscopic rings 5 kilometers across. These rings contain a massive blue glowing core of element zero. The relays are made of an unknown but incredibly resilient material, the same material that the Citadel is built from and are protected by a quantum shield that renders them nearly impervious to damage by locking their structure in place at the subatomic level. They are even capable of surviving a supernova's wake without being damaged. They are cold objects that don't emit heat or radiation unlike starships, making them difficult to find if their position changes. Some relays, like the Charon relay, are gravitationally anchored to celestial bodies. Others appear to be out, to be out in space and are carefully tracked. Mass relays function by creating a virtually mass-free corridor of space-time between each other. This can propel a starship enormous, uh, across enormous distances that would take centuries to traverse, even at FTL speeds. Before a vessel can travel, the relay must be given the amount of mass to transit by the ship's pilot before it is moved into the approach corridor. When a relay is activated, it aligns itself with the corresponding relay before propelling the ship across space. There are two kinds of mass relay, primary and secondary. Primary relays can propel a ship thousands of light years, but only link to one other relay, its partner. Secondary relays can link to any other relay over a short distance only a few hundred light-years. After the Rachni Wars, spacefaring species won't open a primary relay without knowing where it links to, in case they run into another powerful and hostile species like the Rachni. This caused a rift when the Turians found human pioneers ignorant of this Citadel Council prohibition, trying to open a mass relay they could find while exploring trying to open any mass relay they could find while exploring the relay network, eventually leading to the First Rachni War. Many mass relays are currently dormant for unknown reasons, though they can be easily reactivated. A Prothean data cache found on Mars led humans to a mass relay encased in ice and orbiting Pluto, previously thought to be a moon called Charon, when the Charon relay was uh, which the Charon relay was eventually named after. A piece of Prothean artwork depicting a mass relay, the Relay Monument, can be found on the Citadel Presidium. It has been interpreted as either a symbol of Prothean vanity, expressing the relays as their means to build a galaxy-wide empire, or possibly a symbol of galactic unity, which the relay network also embodies. Tali Zora Naraya claims that after their long voyage through the galaxy, the Quarians have also come to appreciate the aesthetic value of the mass relays. An Asari matriarch once suggested that the Asari should build new mass relays of their own, but it is unknown if modern galactic civilization actually has the capacity to do so. Origins. The mass relays, despite common belief, were created not by the Protheans, but by the Reapers, as stated by Sovereign. The Protheans were merely one of the many alien races to, fi races to find the relays and the Citadel and take advantage of them. When the Reapers wiped out the Protheans, the Asari were the next race to find the relays through the th uh, thousands of years later. According to Sovereign, by using the relays, galactic civilizations evolve along paths the Reapers desire. In addition, the relays serve to accelerate the rate at which the civilizations advance, shortening the time between Reaper harvests. However, the Protheans did have a keen interest in the relays and managed to crack the secret behind their operation. This enabled them to build the conduit before they were destroyed by the Reapers. Commander Shepard also discovers the Citadel itself is an enormous inactive space relay leading to dark space, as well as the control center for all the relays, enabling the Reapers to sever travel between clusters. 
Its reactivation, fittingly, is more complex than that of an ordinary mass relay, requiring either a coordinated effort by the keepers or manual intervention by a reaper. Then there's the whole thing about the destroyed one from Alpha Relay. We'll just skip that part, because I'm frankly, I don't like the Arrival DLC, and it's not... It's actually an example of... At times, the, at, at times the Arrival DLC is almost like an example of contradiction of the lore in some ways, which is frustrating, but... No, we should... Uh, in short, there's the issue of, like, if you blow up a mass relay, which is problematic because the previous parts were all like, that's impossible, but, you know, you know, maybe the, the Protheans were figuring out details about them, so maybe we did too, and maybe we found out how to destroy one. But that led to the gap of, like, if the Alpha Relay blows up and kills everybody, then, like, why did nobody... Like, what happens in the Mass Effect 3 ending when all the relays blow up? Whoops. But anyway, the reason why I read all that stuff is because I want you to think, like, you're probably thinking along the way how many plot points there were in that. Like, that was a, this was essentially reading a codex entry about a particular lore element of how the universe works in Mass Effect back in the Milky Way. The Milky Way? Did I say Ray? Way? Whatever. Uh, all of this was mined over and over again for story beats so many times. And that's important, because every detail can be explored for new meaning and interesting things. First of all, we thought they were Prothean. Turns out they're Reapers. They're not the... Instead of being the uh, remnants of a fallen society and essentially a gift to anyone who finds it, they're actually a spider's web. Whoops. That's that's the, that's the switch from Prothean to Reaper. Uh, it lets you travel instantaneously, but it's not just magic. Like, Mass Effect as a concept is space magic, essentially. But it's space magic that had some kind of rules to it. Much like how biotics that use mass effect fields in order to use space magic in more literal sense, or the force, basically. Uh, they have, like, they like there's differences from race to race. Like, these people can't use biotics. These people can use it intrinsically. So these people need implants. And then you have the issue with Caden, where, like, he has a... He has L2 implants, and other people have L3 implants. And, like, there's different, like... Apple iPhone generations of implants that have different negative and positive consequences for the people that use them. And like, there's like, there's actual like hardware manufacturer life cycles going on here. Like even that had details to it. But we also have this interesting thing, which is something that I actually didn't even fully pick up on and understand, but it, but it, this, this different, this difference between a secondary and primary relay, there's two different types of relays that work differently. One of them is a short-range hub that explains how you can easily be uh, essentially transfer and have these like complicated pathways, whereas the other one is a long-range single-target uh, back-and-forth thing. Like the difference between... They're essentially like the difference between streets that cars drive on and uh, paths that like trains go by, essentially, or planes even, where like the, you go from airport to airport versus just driving wherever you feel like. That, that kind of difference in detail and this isn't just a weird explanation like uh this isn't like the the reloads that mass effect one and, and so on ha have like the difference in like thermoclips this is actually a thing that's mined for major plot beats both in the lore and storyline and stories you're going to encounter individually along the way like we're talking about how the rachni 
were something that were encountered because somebody opened a primary relay and on the other side was an invasive species and that led to a massive war. And so now you have this new rule, don't open primary relays until you know what's on the other side because you could doom everybody. There could be like... Sure, we're the Citadel, but there could be another thing just as as big and bad as the Citadel that hates us on the other side of the galaxy, and we're we could be one primary relay activation away from encountering them. Like that's a, and that's a reasonable fear to have after multiple reinforcements of that kind of idea. And then you also have like it, it not only does it explain the Rachni, it actually explains as a plot point the first contact war, which is something that only which is also a fun detail, the fact that the humans call it the first contact war and think it's this big, dramatic, important thing, and they make a big deal about it, whereas the Turians uh, make a small deal of it because they're, they're, they're kind of a, a warlike race to begin with, but also it just wasn't that big of a fight for them, honestly. Uh, it was only monumental for us because it was a first contact war, whereas for them, they're like, eh, humans were being a problem over there for a while, and it, it went away eventually. But... The idea that for us, we were going out and discovering space and we were enjoying our hero's journey of encountering this fallen society's technology and the uh, the wonders that it brings us. Whereas <laughs> the Turians were chasing after us like a parent trying to console a toddler when the toddler's just beating its head against walls and hurting itself and running towards fire and sharp objects. And that was essentially, in many ways, what the first contact war was, was the idea that, like, the Turians were like, no, oh shit, they're up, they're up, they're activating primary relays, like, that will fuck everything up if they get the wrong one. Like, that, like, that's, that's great, that's great. That's a great background for stuff. That's both a cohesive storyline of dealing with this central mechanic that makes your universe work while also defining the interpersonal politics between different races and their kingdoms and their empires and whatnot and how they deal with each other and how different things mean different things from different perspectives because of how asymmetrical these different races are, which God, I miss that so much because we've talked about last time, I believe how I think we talked about last time, how like in, Andromeda's universe, the races are all just one group, so that's gone, and boy do I miss it, because that was great. And it's important, because this is all details about how you can mine this, pl- You can, if you set up a cohesive universe, much like when you talk about like your stat sheet in Dungeons & Dragons, and the rules of the universe in Dungeons & Dragons, you create role-playing scenarios where story can happen, oftentimes just by doing mechanics, like... It actually can, once you have the world, it can be surprisingly easy to come up with plot points that work within that world because you have an existing thing. And if you just respect the rules of your universe, then there's a lot of things that have natural conclusions and natural outcomes that come to not only uh, interesting scenarios and interesting storylines, but also storylines that feel authentic like because they fit within the world as opposed to just being randomly made up like uh that one Hanar's movies basically <laughs> like this is great it's great knowing that there's this primary and secondary relays it's great to know that there's like there's this policy about primary relays and then then there's the role that the relays took play uh, the 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 role the relays had in both uh first contact with humans and first contact with uh with the Rachni. And there's even this ongoing plot point of like, there's that monument in the middle of the Presidium. What does it mean? Is it just, were the were the Protheans like these warlike 
this warlike race and this was like a symbol of their their uh, achievement and their power or was this just like a an aesthetically beautiful symbol of unity and peace because in, in a way the ability to span and bring everyone together is also a potential interpretation of the relays and the answer is psych it's the conduit you're fucked because it was actually a teleport spot that lets the reapers into the citadel and this is the center of the spider web and like ah the, all these different angles for one thing. It's a fucking statue in the middle of the Citadel. And it has more character than and more plot significance than virtually anything you encounter in so much of Mass Effect Andromeda. And that's important. And the reason I'm highlighting this, then at least the next topic I want to go on from this topic, is the QECs. Because that is one of the biggest missed opportunities in the entire game for me. Because these other... Because we've talked about these other, uh, these other lacks, these other lacking detail points, the Geth telescope, the Quarian arc. The thing about those things is they don't matter. I know I've talked about them a lot, but they don't matter individually. The Quarian arc and the Geth telescope never affect the story in any way at any point of the entire thing. They are just symptoms of what I'm getting at because they are throwaway details that are haphazardly tossed out there by who knows even who. I, does this game even ha- I, I'm not even entirely sure at times if the game has a dedicated writing staff or it was just like a bunch of like crowdsourced ideas throughout the entire staff of what to do and with plot points. But like that, th- those are haphazard details thrown out there because this is not detail oriented, and it, and that's a problem because. When you, when you have a concrete universe with details, you can mine those details for plot points like, like we talked about with the, with the, uh, with the mass relays and, and how that can expand things. And, like, and in fact, on a regular basis, expansions to Mass Effect games and sequels to Mass Effect games were often expanding on what mass relays do and what they can, think, what they can mean. And like, that was supposed to be a big deal, like how in Arrival... A uh, mass relay explodes, and and we we know that uh, an exploding mass relay apparently takes out an entire solar system, and that's that's cataclysmic. That's horrifying, and the fact that the ending of Mass Effect Three doesn't fully respect that and doesn't think seem to consider that is a massive problem. But we talked about that last time. Also, the scenario of the Omega relay facilitates the entire climax and final conflict of Mass Effect Two. Uh. There's a specific plot point that they throw out there that is another one of these throwaway lines that they barely acknowledge, but it does affect the story. The Geth Telescope doesn't matter. The Quarian Arc doesn't matter. QECs matter a lot. Like, they matter so much. And I'm not here to rag on the fact that, like, they're like, oh, communications are jammed, even though the entire point of QECs is they can't be jammed. And I don't, we've been over that. But I want to talk about how QE, the uh, quantum entanglement com- communicators that fed back from between the Andromeda Initiative and the Council Space are dead. They don't work. Because the first plot, the first question I had when we were going in, on the Andromeda Initiative, I'm like, I was like, we have contact with uh, back home, right? Like that was the first question I had, and I'm not even a member of this. I'm not a member of this world. This world's fictional. I'm a real person in a different reality. And the first question I had was, can we talk back home? Can we? Like, I know it's been 600 years, but like, how are they doing? It's the first question I have because you time jump 600 years and you want to know what's happening in the Milky Way. It's a natural question to have. And uh, I went 
hours trying to get an answer, and the game wasn't really giving it to me. Eventually, you get a throwaway line that, like, yeah, the QECs seem to not be working that go back to Milky Way. I'm like, well, that's a big deal. Turns out the game doesn't think it's a big deal. They just don't bring it up. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like that? No. That right there is a major goddamn plot point. And and this isn't like, we're not talking about plot holes this time around. We're not talking about like inconsistencies or like, man, that sure you pull out that you pull out that one brick and the entire Jenga tower falls down of the logic of the universe. Like that's not the point of this. My point here is missed opportunity. This is a point of drama. This is a point of storytelling that should be mined for all it's worth. And the old Mass Effect would have, because it's important. You struck out on your own, knowing you would never go back to the to your home. You don't have the resources to make a jump back from Andromeda to the Milky Way. Everyone knew that. But they didn't know they'd be cut off from the Milky Way on a communication level. QECs are things people know about. And... The idea you can't talk back to your home to even know what's left of it, that's horrifying. Every, something that every race in, in Mass Effect and, in fact, humans in real life are obsessed with is their history and their heritage and their ancestors. We care about where we came from. We would absolutely care about the Milky Way after going to Andromeda. We want to know if it's safe. We want to know if it exists. Oh, by the way, minor plot point, just in quick case you hadn't thought about this yet. Uh, yeah, humans, we live for like maybe 100 years. Salarians live for like 40 years. Asari and Krogan live for like a 1,000 years. Isn't that interesting? Oh, how long was this journey? About 600 years. Okay. Um, what was a primary plot point in, oh, I don't know, the movie Interstellar by Christopher Nolan? Was it a family? <laughs> across space and how love binds us across these great distances and how maybe Matthew McConaughey really wants to talk to his daughter even when she's older <laughs> cuz that's what the that's what that's what the Krogans are going through and that's what the Asari are going through their ancestors we're not even talking about ancestors or grandchildren their family members that they knew in person are still alive in many cases they're it's only been half a lifetime you telling me that these people don't want to talk to their own family members back home and that's not the first thing on their mind the moment they wake up is like, like, oh, wow, we're in Andromeda. This is incredible. And oh, no, crisis. But also Andromeda seems to take place over maybe the course of an entire year, like a bunch of time has passed. So they've sure to really come across the shock of like gotten over the shock of like, oh, no, the planet we arrived on is bad. Uh, at some point, they're going to be like, I want to talk to Jenny or whoever the fuck. I want to talk to my sister. Is she a matriarch now? I'm curious. How are things going on back in the uh, back in the Milky Way? That should be hammered home constantly. And I don't know why it's not. It's either A, my previous thesis or whatever the hell you want to call it, my hypothesis that like that that this is just not a a that the developers of this particular Mass Effect game suddenly stopped caring about details. Or it's just like a fear of talking about the original Mass Effect, but I can't, it can't be that. It can't be that. Because I could almost buy that if they were like, there was a mandate, like, don't talk about the original trilogy, this is a new thing, 
uh, either to either at an attempt to not reopen the wounds of where Mass Effect 3 went at the end and how people responded to it, or because you want to make it feel like this thing can stand on its own and you don't want to constantly refer to the old one. They fucked that up because <laughs> not only do you have Cerberus in this game, you have uh, Saeed's son shows up in this game. Uh, Okir's research shows up in this game. Uh, multiple characters that are either related to a character, like there are multiple characters that are related to cast members of the original Mass Effect games. You have audio logs from Liara. You have multiple things that are direct references. You have the you have a model of the Norman DSR two on your shelf. Like so clearly, uh, we're not just cutting all ties to the, the original trilogy. So it must be the lack of detail, like I was originally hammering home, and that's a bummer. Because that is an interesting plot point. The idea that people, like, like they they knew to they knew to make a plot a quest chain about the AI on board and talk about like how some people might have issues with an AI being on board. They knew to do that, but they didn't know to have to mine for drama, what it means to be cut off from your home. Like every now and then, you have people go like, "Wow, we really left, and we're not going back." Huh. Like, I knew it was permanent, but it's permanent, permanent. And, like, there's, like, cute dialogue about that every now and then. Like, that moment of, like, ah, I'm a little sad about it, but I knew I would be. But I also didn't fully know exactly what it'd feel like until the moment I really felt it. But add to that a layer of, like, telling all these Krogan and Asari that they're family members that are still alive back home. Uh, they can't talk to them. And that this was a way more permanent and immediately like no turning back cut off point than they ever thought it would be. That should be a big deal. Not even dealing with the issue of like, they should, uh, people should just generally care about whether or not like earth still exists and stuff like that. Cause yeah, we as players know what happened in the end of mass effect three and how like they might be fucked. Maybe the reapers won, or maybe everyone's a weird half bio organic, half cybernetic hybrid fuck it's really hard to get over the fact that there was an ending of mass effect 3 where there was like leaves that were covered in circuit boards because that was a thing i just want <laughs> in case you forgot how stupid that was because holy fuck the ending of mass effect 3 was stupid they had jungle foliage with like circuit boards printed on them because that's what organic and cybernetic being mixed together means fuck man the synthesis ending like Mass Effect 3's ending was already stupid, but the synthesis the synthesis ending should have never been allowed to exist because it's so many degrees of stupider than the other two endings are, in an or which are already stupid mainly because of how they're introduced. But oh my god, the synthesis ending is like a parody that someone would write as a joke, but it's real <laughs> and it's never going away. Uh, but like. Like I understand that they don't want to fully touch on the infinite complexities of that of the nightmarish branching ending, and so I I support the idea of the QECs not working as a plot point, but you need to use that as a plot point. You need to respect your universe and its people and its races and your players enough to have storylines about what happens when people are cut off from their home forever in a way that they that's way more permanent than anyone ever thought it would be. Because they never, they thought they'd never go back. But the communication being cut off—that that matters. People should be freaking out about what happened to the Milky Way, or why the QECs aren't working, or the, just the uncertainty of it. And pe we should have, a, we should have a member 
We should have a crew member in particular, because this is because all storytelling about the universe of Mass Effect is always handled through the crew, which is a good idea. It's convenient and tropey, but it's good. It's good how ever since KOTOR, we've had a weird amalgamation of varieties of party members that are like different parts of your space galaxy that teach you about different elements like the Mandalorians and stuff like that. Like having the Mandalorian on your crew in the old, in the old KOTOR game, like that was, that was a good idea. Uh, teaches you all about Boba Fett and how, this, how his stupid bounty hunter ass that was useless in, that, in those movies got retconned into being an entire species of assholes. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you need you, there should be a crew member who is just fucking torn up about how, like, they can't talk to their sister anymore and they don't know what happened to them and they're, like, having nightmares about their fate and, like, they regret every day that they ever came here. Like there, it, it, I don't care if it's a downer. Somebody should be freaked out about this, and it should be a crew member, so it feels personal. And maybe that's a detail that only shows up halfway through the game. Is like you have this crew member that is like maybe a little, little Jack edgy here and there, where they're just being a pain, and you don't really fully understand why they're being a dick. And much like how Jack has the explanation of you going through her loyalty mission and finding out about why she acts the way she does. Uh, this crew member should reveal finally in an outburst, like the, how it's been eating them up inside that they can't talk to their home anymore and that their family, they don't know what happened to them, but they would still be alive here based on like Asari or Krogan lifespans or something like that. And that then how fucked up it is that the QEC is gone. Like this could be a core plot point. And that was the power of Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2 in particular was that you had these various crew members from different walks of life and the different and almost every single time when you delved into their backstory you were learning more about the world and the capabilities of the sci-fi universe and it was being mined for drama like as much as I didn't really like her a lot of the time Miranda is a very good example of this. Miranda is a character who is genetically engineered in this nightmare sci-fi future where Gattaca can happen for realsies. <laughs> and you can have a weird fake cybernetic, not cybernetic, you can have a weird fake artificial person that is a real person, but like is like engineered like a replicant to be this weird alternate version, by which I mean the movie versions of replicants, not the book versions of replicants, because I guess the book versions of replicants are actually fundamentally different from humans and like can't have empathy but like the movie ones are basically just people but they die quickly but like but they're super people miranda is a super uh, miranda is super people but she was made by a person and that person is a fucked up monster and did horrible things to her and her family and has bad plans for them and she has a sibling that is also going through that and so she has motivations and like she, she has the insecurities about whether or not she counts as a person, and whether or not she, and whether or not any of the things she earns is her, is hers. She has the fucked up, ongoing thing of like how everyone has daddy issues in Mass Effect universe, and this is another case of that. And you have to deal with this antagonist and this baggage, and uh, you need to give, track down this this sister and get them to a safe place, and like, and this this speaks to another thing that we'll get to later, which is that like. In Mass Effect universe, much like what I talked talked said about before about D and D characters, characters should have quirks and flaws and motivations. Like they they need to have a variety of different purposes and downsides and so on, so that they work as a character and they're memorable and they're interesting. Because 
as much as I was initially dismissive of Miranda, even as I played through the games multiple times, and as I played Mass Effect 2 this last time in particular, when I was replaying the trilogy before Andromeda came out, I really grew to like that storyline and how she has these specific flaws and weaknesses and insecurities, and she's a surprisingly human character, despite the fact that the camera angle treats her like an, like she's just ass walking around, which is a bummer. Uh, but actually, like, I kind of learned to look past that specifically and, like, look past how the camera treats a ga- uh, character sometimes, because there's that interesting thing where, like, uh, there's there's a Lindsay Ellis video that's really good. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a, there's a whole Lindsay Ellis series called The Whole Plate, where she... Basically, she's basically teaching a bunch of different uh, topics on film studies and stuff like that, but through the filter of Michael Bay Transformers movies. And one of the ongoing things was about uh, she started she started t- uh, dealing with the concept of like feminist theory and talking about how specifically there's the female protagonist of the first two Transformers movies played by I don't remember the actress's name, but she was her name was hard a lot harder to forget back then for a while when it would, wouldn't go away. But uh, the love interest character of the Mass Effect of the of the Transformers One movie, uh, she is super capable, and she's the most effective character in the in the entire movie. She has a bunch of different skills, and she's determined, and she has character flaws, and she even has a story arc, a kind of actual character arc in a Transformers movie, a franchise where no one has character arcs. In the first movie, she had a character arc. She was a fully fleshed out character. And she had she had an arc, and she had flaws, and she had skills, and she was determined, and she had a personality, and like everything about her was actually relatively well realized. But the entire movie treated her like a piece of ass. So every single camera angle was like, "Look at them boobs! Look at her leaning over that car! Look at that booty shorts! Look at all this other stuff!" And it's like the camera didn't respect her. And so interestingly, audience reactions were always that she was just like this like slutty, pointless side character that doesn't do anything in the entire film and has no purpose. Whereas the script of the movie actually had a lot of purpose for her and an entire story arc planned for her and actually had her fleshed out as a character. It's just the camera didn't treat her the same way. So uh, it didn't like that, 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 because the camera didn't treat her the same way, the audience didn't treat her the same way, and that was a problem. That's a problem that I I realized I encountered at times with Miranda, and also other people encountered with Miranda is that because the camera angle sometimes just just frames her like, look at that booty and stuff like that. Uh, it's easy to f- to end up focusing too much on how the camera treats her and not how the story treats her, which is that she, it was just that Miranda is actually a pretty decent character, uh, and I had a I had I had a good time sort of. Sort of, uh, what do we call it? Uh, God damn it, the, the word's not coming to me at all. Redeeming her, in my own eyes, playing Mass Effect 2. Not only using her in the party a lot, and also looking past the camera angle bullshit and enjoying her actual storyline, but also I took her with me on the final mission and had that satisfying scene where she... Uh, finally breaks the leash with the elusive man and sides with you. And like, that's a character arc. I'm like, yes, that's some cool shit they did with Miranda that I didn't fully appreciate, which was partly to do with the fact that it's easy to look past certain characters in that game because there's so many of them and it's easy to focus on other ones because that are that are more immediately appealing that if there's anyone that turns you off for any particular reason, it's easy to just look past them for various reasons. And that was, a, if she was a victim of overcrowding, perhaps. But, uh, God, that was 
Man, I have to re- reel back to where I, how I got there because we're not even in the fully in the character section I wanted to talk about yet, but but in the character driven detail thing. But yeah, like there's there absolutely should have been a character in the party that was freaking out about the QEC topic, and that should have been a point of drama. Instead of that point of drama, we get we get nothing. We kind of get nothing. You see. <sighs> So in Mass Effect 1, every party member was essentially a conduit into a particular section of the Mass Effect universe. You have the Asari character that will awkwardly break away from maybe my mother's dead to immediately talking about how Asari fuck. And that's like really awkward dialogue. Like I'm not going to pretend that's not awkward dialogue. But everyone in Mass Effect 1 was a conduit into a particular subsection of the Mass Effect universe. Everyone in Mass Effect 2, instead, was generally a fully-fledged character, and they were usually also mined to explore particular elements of the Mass Effect universe, but they were also given more room to float on their own as characters. The only proper Mass Effect 2 character that's in Mass Effect 1 is Garrus. Garrus is not a Mass Effect 1 character, he's a Mass Effect 2 character, because he's literally just a cop that that's sick of playing by the rules. Like, Garrus does not really help you understand Turians, particularly, and he doesn't, and he's not even that much of a big conduit into understanding the Citadel, or Citadel space, which is the other, because being CSEC, you think he might be going to that. Nope. Citadel, uh, from the very first game, Garrus was immediately an analog for Shepard, as being the, like, the secondary Shepard, the overshadowed Shepard, or... Ender's Shadow, if you will, because for those of you that don't know, there's Ender's Game, where Ender is the protagonist, and then there's Ender's Shadow, an entire secondary book that takes place over the same storyline, but it's the side character from the Ender, from the Ender's Game storyline, and it reveals that he was essentially uh, being prepped as the secondary Ender if Ender failed. <laughs> so, and, that, and in many ways, that's Garrus is that Ender succeeds in Ender's game, but there was a secondary character that was prepped to... that was essentially a similar role and personality and with similar potential that was ultimately overshadowed and and a sidekick the entire storyline, but was there and could have potentially risen to the occasion if something happened to Shepard. And in fact, I kind of like to think that there is some sort of alternate storyline where maybe if Shepard... in like the Zelda timeline of branching storylines where Shepard fails at the end of Mass Effect 2 and Archangel is never recruited or something like that. Like maybe like maybe Archangel becomes the new Shepard in some way and may, and maybe even does a better job for all we know. Like that's the potential scene there. But aside from him, everybody else in Mass Effect 1 was just a portal into lore. But that is valid. I'm cool with that. If you want to treat your Bioware characters as portals into lore, that is also valid. And they get their own personalities along the way, and Garrus, uh, Garrus and Rex both get character-driven moments. But it's one way of handling things. You can either make them a lore character, or you can make them a fully-fleshed character character, like all the Mass Effect 2 characters, or something in between, which some Mass Effect 2 characters are. And, and let's look at the Andromeda characters. I'm going to try to look at the Andromeda characters to try to compare them. Because I think they largely fail. Let's see, I'm opening up a wiki to make sure I remember everybody, which is a problem already that I, that's the thing I'm doing. But here we go. I'm up, I'm up, up the, uh, the Mass Effect Andromeda characters wiki, just so I could, just to make sure I remember everyone, which, uh, is alarming. Like, yeah, you can say that I'm, that I, 
You can say that I've replayed the other Mass Effect games multiple times, sure. So I'm like more likely to remember all the characters, and then yeah, I get that. But also like there's the element of like I played Mass Effect Andromeda for 80 hours because it's a long ass game, and you never you never stop having crew members with you at all times. But it, it's going to be interesting to see when we do the Plinket test, as we might as well refer to it. Well, not quite, but there. <sighs> yeah, for the record, I, I spent like 80 hours with Mass Effect Andromeda, whereas I would say that Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 are about 20, 30, and 40 hours, respectively. Because each one gets about, I think each one gets about 10 hours long, in my estimation. It longer. But uh, for those who don't know, there was a nice little test that I thought was really compelling in uh, uh, Plinkett's review, Red Letter Media's review of Star Wars The Phantom Menace, which is that. He asks you to describe characters from a list. Describe their personality, but don't tell but don't describe what they look like and don't describe what their job is. Just just describe their personality. And he asked people uh to describe uh C3PO and Han Solo and characters like that, you know, memorable, iconic and fascinating characters that we've you know, built a multi-billion dollar empire on, uh, we, not we, but well, we did, we built it with our money and they built it by owning it. Uh, <laughs> uh, then, then he was like, now let's ask about the personality of Queen Amidala and Qui-Gon Jinn. Yeah. Good luck describing the character of Qui-Gon Jinn. Now I'm a little biased because as a kid or a young teenager, a young adult, I suppose I did read the Jedi apprentice series because uh, when I was like 12, I thought Star Wars The Phantom Menace was the best movie ever made. Uh, that went away over time, but uh, that did lead to me buying and reading these Jedi Apprentice novels, which are the ones where Qui-Gon is raising Obi-Wan in the Jedi Order. And then after Episode 2 came out, there was a whole other series where it's uh, Obi-Wan raising Anakin in the Jedi Order. And like those were decent. They probably have more personality and character than most of the characters did in... in uh, Phantom Menace, so the, the, those characters have been fleshed out for me in a way that the movies never did, but uh, that was a thing. But yeah, I, I also did the test on multiple people in real life, because I watched it with multiple people, and they would watch, they would watch, uh, they'd watch the review and hit that part, and the first thing they would say is, hang on a minute, Queen Amidala, she's young and naive, and I'm like, you're not, those aren't character traits that are actually exerted in the film, that's, you're literally quoting Sidious. Sidious says, Queen Amadala is young and naive. And the first thing people do when they explain the personality of Queen Amadala is literally quote what the villain said about her. And I'm like, that's a problem. That's a problem of all you can think of is what the villain said about her, which isn't even entirely true because, like, if she's so naive, why does she have a body double? And, like, why is she, like, trying to go to the Senate? And, like, there's all these, like, like sure, like, she's wrong about some stuff, but, like, she actually has multiple things she does that are like the opposite of naivete but okay sure let's just quote the villain because that's good writing is just to say what the character's personality is to the audience instead of showing it that's what I, my favorite part about han solo is when we read the codex entry that explains what, it, what his personality is so we're not going to do exactly that but i'm going to instead apply more of a test in terms of what i value in an rpg like, I want interesting, memorable characters, and in order for them to play off each other well and be compelling, they need flaws. 
they have to have problems and not just adversity problems as in like, oh no, the bad guy wants us dead. That's a problem. But like deep-seated issues in their personality or their past and the decisions that they have made that bring them to where they are. Because that's what makes them compelling characters. And basically every compelling major fictional character we've ever cared about ever usually uh, applies on some level to uh, succeeding. That's... Did not have a sentence plan there at all. It just kind of turned into words. But uh, pretty much every major fictional character that has a memorable personality and we cherish has some elements of this somewhere. Even a lot of the bad ones usually get this much right. And if you don't have those kinds of problems, you uh, get into an element of writing that is unfortunate because it goes into the original character Do Not Steal Mary Sue territory, where, for those who don't know, Mary Sue, or at least my understanding of it that I'm going to throw out here without researching it again, because that's apparently how I do this, uh, people will write stories where they have a self-insert character. It's a it's an ongoing fan fiction problem in particular, is people will write their their Sonic the Hedgehog fan fiction or their Star Wars fan fiction and so on, and they'll make up a character. And that made-up character uh, is usually a form of wish fulfillment and self-insertion where it's essentially them. And they care so much about that character and that, that they, they don't want to... They don't want to hurt the image of that character. They don't want to make their character look bad. So the character ends up having no flaws and a hundred different powers. And if you're really like a Mass Effect, Mary Sue of the worst, most zero self-awareness kind might be like a half Asari that has the L4 implants and loves everybody and like likes and dislikes, like likes sushi and video games and dislikes mean people and ignorance because fucking I hate it when people write their make up their characters have a likes and dislikes meter like wow you dislike intolerant people wow me too what a compelling character uh fuck people make terrible characters when they get the chance to make characters that they make to represent themselves uh and if so if you care about a character too much and you're too close to them you make a character that's too perfect and all of their flaws are not really flaws they're just flaws that make them cooler and more edgy or more fitting to your particular likes. Like like how like somebody might like have their character be a badass guy with a trench coat and he's a loner because he's a lone wolf. And it's like, but it's like all of his all of his negative traits are basically positive traits that just some people might call negative, but it's really just like more things that make you think they're cooler. And Drac suffers from some of that because Drac is like, I'm an old Krogan and look at all these cybernetic parts. I've been torn apart and put back together so many times because I'm so badass and like that kind of thing. And it's like that on its own could be a good storyline and it could be a trait of a character that has other interesting traits. But just having that like scars and wounds and stuff like that doesn't count as a flaw. It counts as just an, a detail that made your character seem cool. It's not a personality problem. So what I'm going to do... Let's do bring this up really quick. I'm going to try to compare Mass Effect Andromeda characters to Mass Effect 2 characters, as an example, for the purposes of this test. Because that'll be fun. So, let's just go in the order that's listed on the page, I suppose. Cora Harper, which... Man, this one's a hard one, because I, 
forgot she existed for a large chunk of the playthrough. I I would periodically talk to her because I'd engage in the Mass Effect loop and Bioware loop of like, hey, you're between missions. You should go talk to all your party members to see if like storylines happen and might make some good like reveals about how they work. So Cora Harper already has some Mary Sue warning flags pop up immediately, which is that she is a human biotic that was raised with the Asari Huntresses and tra- or not raised with, but trained with the Asari Huntresses. So you got this already thing like this, basically what's going on right now with, with a Star Trek discovery is the protagonist of the entire series is a human that was tra- that trained with the, the Vulcans. And you're like, Oh great! So we're gonna have a Vul- we're gonna hu- have a human walk around dressed like a Vulcan a bit, but then also be torn between being Vulcan and human. And mostly, they're so far just throw- they're mostly just wasting it because so far she's just a human, and her being Vulcan seems comp- incredibly irrelevant past the first episode, basically. But Cora, I guess, is her point is that she is part Asari, not not biologically, but like that's part of her training as a person. Guess how important that is to the story? Not particularly. Uh, her loyalty mission is that you eventually go after the Asari Ark and you encounter somebody that she idolized and you find out that person uh, wasn't. Ultimately, poss- that, that person might have not been fully worth idolizing They may because they betray their own superior, uh, superior officer. And that is a compelling plot point. But Korra as a character... Uh, like that's not a f- that's not really a flaw for her. It's a wrinkle. It's a development in her plotline. But she as a character, being a a sorry trained character, isn't really a flaw, and it doesn't really manifest itself really much at all. Partly because the the concept of an Asari huntress is like a background detail that has existed in the Mass Effect universe, but isn't we don't really have a super strong idea of what that would mean for an individual necessarily it's not like the asari or vulcans or klingons where they have a really specific behavior pattern the asari are actually kind of like these chill human non-gendered creatures and they're badass sure but you see the problem here it's like saying that like it's almost like this element of like saying your character is neo it's like wow they're the, look they can they can see the code congrats like they have the special training okay that's not interesting like it's interesting as an in- it's interesting on an individual detail like huh but then that's all she has her entire character is that she is a human biotic that trained with the asari and her personality is that she's kind of strict or stern sometimes seems to be kind of how she behaves she's like ever so slightly but inoffensively abrasive like, not in an interesting way, not in a Jack way, not in an Ashley way. Like, she's not, Cora's not going to offend people. Like, Ashley, people still get mad that she's racist, even though, like, I, she's really not racist. She just doesn't trust aliens as, like, not as a, God, I, I hate, I guess we can talk about that, though. Fuck it, yeah. Instead of comparing Korra against a Mass Effect uh, 2, two character, let's compare her with a Mass Effect 1 character then. Let's compare Korra with Ashley, the two female crew members that are human in Mass Effect Andromeda and Mass Effect 1. They should, In fact, this should be the fairest comparison ever, right? Because they're both starting level uh, characters. They're both 
beginning of a trilogy, so should be equally fair as opposed to Mass Effect 2, which cheated by having the ability to just be fully fleshed characters from the, be- the get-go. So, Ashley Jenkins... Ash, sorry. <sighs> Wait, I'm sorry. Who the fuck is Ashley Jenkins? Ashley Jenkins. Because this is going to bother me, so I'm just going to Google this shit. Oh, Ashley Jenkins is from Rooster Teeth. Okay, um, that's where I got that. Ashley Williams, which uh, is an obvious reference to Ash Williams from Evil Dead in, in her name, but that's not really important. It's just a throwaway detail. Uh, she is a human soldier. She is doomed to be the most boring character in any Mass Effect game ever. And yet, she actually beats several Mass Effect characters. Uh, she beats Caden. Uh, she beats Jacob. She beats Korra. She beats Liam. She beats uh, basically every other human character besides like Miranda and, ja- and Jack, pretty much. And, pe- and people have varying responses to being called Lola. So <laughs> I'm just going to not touch on how people... People don't agree on how to, how to treat the Mass Effect 3 human crew member. And I'm still undecided sometimes, but fine. So... Ashley is interesting because she is, she voices racist rhetoric at moments in the first game, but is specifically and nuancedly not racist. Instead, uh, the issue with Ashley is that she doesn't trust aliens as an organization. Like, she doesn't have a problem going on a mission with, with a Turian, for example, or a Krogan, which is what happens throughout the game. Her problem is she doesn't trust Turians as or like Citadel races. She doesn't trust the Council. She doesn't trust the Turian military. She doesn't trust the organizations themselves. And as she elegantly puts it at one point in a thing that I will butcher via paraphrasing and not remember correctly, uh, she talks about like if you're under if you're being attacked by a bear, and and you have your dog, your hunting dog, like you love your dog. But you're gonna, but you're gonna let the, but the bear's gonna, you're gonna let the bear get the dog, as opposed to you or maybe your family or so on. Like, and you can agree or disagree with what Ashley is saying there about how much you should fight for the the, the protection of the dog at the, at your own risk, and that is a spectrum of different people. But you can't say that she's totally unreasonable there. Like the bear poses a lethal threat to you. The dog is not you, and is not one of your family members, and it's not one of you. So, a lot of people would probably be willing to sacrifice the dog in order to survive a bear attack. And they'd feel bad about it, and that's bad, but it can happen. And so that's Ashley's analysis of how race relations work in the Mass Effect universe. Is like, we can get along with Turians, we can get along with Asari. But when something bad happens, when something truly horrible happens, and you have to choose, they'll sacrifice the dog. And in this case, the humanity is the dog. Because <laughs> humans are not Turians. They're not Asari. And it's it's some of it comes down to race and trust. And some of it just comes down to incentive structures. If you're the leader of the Asari, your job is to protect the Asari. That's your job. It's hard to come up with incentive to reach out and defend other groups over your own. And in fact that and and the story proves actually right 
because in Mass Effect 3, the entire story is how everybody sacrificed the dog. Every single organization in all of Mass Effect 3 sacrifices the dog during the Reaper invasion, in that uh, all of them retreat to their individual areas and just deal with their problems and say to hell with everybody else. And the entire point of Mass Effect 3 is as Shepard essentially resolving various problems to specifically get everyone to to do that to uh uh to come together at long last and and to have the only chance possible of, of like going with the crucible and saving uh and saving the universe from well the galaxy from the reapers like that's important but nonetheless like you can tell from the way that people reacted to Ashley like it still is seen as a character flaw. People are definitely bothered by the fact that Ashley says what she does because, and I think it's part of it is because we have the, um, the advantage of not being members of the Mass Effect universe. So we don't have to think about the stakes and what will happen to us as humanity because we're not in it. And so when you're not putting yourself in those shoes, you can see, you look at humanity first or Ashley and you see them as being a huge problem. And as things progress and expand, you can fully realize over time where the divergence between humanity first and Ashley and where like how the humanity first people are going off the deep end where Ashley actually has a more nuanced opinion that is realistic about her situation and what, what will happen ultimately in the storyline. Uh, but it's clearly a thing that bothers people. And they were willing, like they knew that they knew when they wrote Ashley, what the rhetoric sounds like. That is what people say when they are actually racist and she walks it back and she contextualizes it in great ways that makes sense. And I think ultimately it does uh, mean something different than just like Ashley's a bigot. And it's that simple, which I was disappointed to see in the comments a lot of people do think it's that simple that Ashley is just bigoted and that's it and that's the only reason for her behavior and I'm like no that's did you miss everything but okay in addition to this uh, Ashley has to deal with the fact that her father was her father or grandfather is a greatly dishonored character uh, they were seen I, I, if I remember correctly didn't they they, I think she, I think they uh, surrendered. I think they either surrendered to the Turians or in some way lost in a major way. And so they were seen as this dishonorable failure within the military. And Ashley carries that name and that insecurity. And you can look at that and see why she's so gung-ho to throw her face, throw herself into danger and go into these ditch and, and, and all these crazy scenarios and risk herself and ultimately risk dying in Vermeer. She will, just like Caden, she is willing to sacrifice herself to make sure that bomb goes off. And her earlier character development explains that because of uh because of the specific uh history that her family has and this redemption mission that she sees herself as shouldering like that's character development that that motivates her behaviors cora is an ambient pill in human form <laughs> like she is a relentlessly boring person with almost no flaws or character traits she's kind of stern she likes the asari 
And at most, the most interesting thing you can get out of her is that you can make jokes about how she's essentially the equivalent of a Asari weeaboo in that she is like Americans that obsess over Japanese culture. She's She feels like that for a human obsessing over Asari culture a little bit. But not in. But she doesn't really do it in any kind of endearing way. She doesn't. She's not like constantly sharing Asari trivia with you at every corner, and she doesn't seem particularly infatuated by it. It's just a part of her history that she's relatively tight-lipped about. And they kind of don't go anywhere else with her throughout the game. Like I have to go through and read her. And part of the reason why I have so little to say about her, even though the fact that she has a bunch of conversations with you on the ship, is because that these traits are not reinforced. Like, you remember that Ashley... Like, Ashley has a bunch of different inter- uh, conversations with you, but some of them are harder to remember. Like, it's harder to remember when she tells you a story about her si- her sister punching that dude out or whatever, because it doesn't come up later. So, I like, to the point where in the more recent playthrough of it... When I encountered that story, I didn't remember it. And I was like, have I ever encountered this dialogue before? I don't remember. Because uh, I I didn't remember it. Uh, but like the issue of her family name, that is reinforced by a plot point within the same game. So it gets reinforced and you remember it. None of Korra's uh, uh, personality traits or histories come up again at any point in the game except for her connection with the Asari, which only comes up during the Asari or Ark mission. Which just boils down to uh, hero worship being betrayed, and that's it. And while that's an interesting plot point, it's not enough to carry an entire character and make them memorable or interesting. And to the point where, like, if Car- if Korra died in the game, I don't know how many people would feel that much of a gut punch compared to, like, half the other faceless people that aren't even in your party member that could die. And in fact, there's at least one or two crew members that could die that people would care more about, I think. Mainly Kahlo who is probably better written than most of the crew members, which is a problem because they're crew members in a Bioware game, and I don't know how that happened. Like, I'm reading her wiki page now, and it says, Her screening interviews state that she was raised in poverty on an independent cargo freighter. She joined the Alliance Alliance at 18 and obtained training for her powerful biotic abilities. I'm like, okay. she's She was raised in poverty? I, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that she probably told me that at some point. I won't claim foul play but who cares like wh- where does that come up in the story like what what is that where is that reinforced because i want to point out these characters had more time to breathe than any character in any mass effect game ever and in many more and and more so than many bioware games every mass effect game but many bioware games uh the only character that can compete with how much screen time and exposure and time that they the developers had where they could have expanded these characters. The only real competition is Tally, Liara, and Garrus because they're in a whole trilogy, but Liara's not in a whole trilogy. And Tally's only in the second half of every game because that's a weird character trait of hers as she gets recruited last every time, apparently. But Garrus has tons of breathing room, so obviously he gets a free pass on they had so much time to develop him that, like, of course he's developed as a character. But Korra, she's your first crew member second crew member after Liam. You technically get Liam 10 minutes sooner, let's be fair. But you get her for 80 hours of game. And yeah, you filter her in and out of the party here and there, but they just don't get much character, necessarily. The most that she gets is that she gets she gets in disagreements with other characters, 
but that's just, that's not enough for me. Like, I will agree that the characters, you get you get closer to them and you start caring about them more when you drive around in your not Mako, whatever, I forgot what it's called now, but the, the, the land vehicle. Because this game has the thing where party members talk to each other. So your party members will talk to each other in the land vehicle while you're going on these long commutes to all of your jobs. Because that's what the game feels like at some point. And yeah, you will have lively dialogue between these characters. And I appreciated that lively dialogue. I did. But that lively dialogue is skin deep. It's banter. And it is not enough to fully suffice as character development. Like... Sure, I get a kick out of it when Mor- uh, Morinth, not Morinth, uh, Morrigan and Leliana talk about shoes. That is some funny dialogue that comes up in Mass Effect and in, uh, in Dragon Age Origins and stuff like that. But those moments are generally not major character beats for those characters. It's just it is just banter. So while I appreciate that the banter is well done in Mass Effect Andromeda and continuing the legacy of the franchise of having good banter between characters, and in fact, at times, there's even specific moments that are some of the best banter ever developed in Mass Effect games or Bioware games. It's, it's, it is up there. It's one of the things that's done right, probably because all that had to happen is some people in a complete vacuum, separate from all of the rest of the game development, just had to write fun conversations between characters and then voice them. And then they were ran- and then they don't even have to put them anywhere in the game, which is probably why it's one of the better parts of the game is it just randomly plays when you're having conversation, when you're driving around which is a bummer because it gets cut off by other dialogue that sucks. Like Sam being like, oh, scan this point, Ryder. I'm like, I, you lost the- Sam, you fuck. You just overrode that conversation for the rest of the game and I'm never going to get it. I'm going to have to look up a YouTube video that's like every conversation between Drac and Korra, which come to think of it, I'm probably going to do after this because I want to hear, I want to go through and do one of those where it's every single possible conversation because those are the good parts. Um, uh, but while I enjoy that stuff, and I can understand why it's good in Andromeda because of how easy it is to implement compared to many other pieces of content, it is not character development. It is only texture. It is not beats. It is not proper shapes. It is not the polygon that makes that makes up the character's personality. It is the color of the wallpaper on it, and it's little scrapes here and there. It's not enough. And Korra never gets more, to the point where she basically deletes herself from the game midway through because I found that getting the Asari arc was one of the easiest and earliest things you could do out of all the uh, loyalty missions. And once I did that loyalty mission, which would have must have been halfway through my playthrough, I basically never encounter Korra for the rest of the game in many ways. Like I could sub her into the party here and there and she'd have some banter here and there, but like she has no more beats or character developments, or things to go on, for what might have been another 30 hours. The game just forgets about her, and at, at most she'll show up in ensemble scenes, where, like, everybody's getting together for movie night, or everybody's revving up for the final mission, then you'll, like, she'll be among the cast, and she'll say one thing, probably. But, like, she never gets character development, she never gets beats, she's just flat and boring. And she's more flat and boring than even characters like Caden and Jacob ever were. And that sucks. And yes, in particular, I think Jacob fails the test I'm talking about here in that Jacob has, like, no flaws. Jacob's big flaw is that he joined Cerberus. He is an honorable man, and he will defend people, and he wants what's right for the galaxy, and he thought that maybe Cerberus would do that. 
and whoops, he disagrees with that. He uh, regrets that decision, but that's like all he does, and it's so boring, and that's why people don't care about Jacob, because he doesn't have anywhere to go. So I would say Cora versus Ashley. Cora win. Uh, uh, Ashley wins as being like a properly developed, interesting character with controversial viewpoints and development from game to game. We can get it's she's not the strongest example, and I'm gonna get, be getting into some of the stronger examples in the follow up examples. But I figured I would. She came up in conversation, so I just went with it. She's not as interesting as Miranda ultimately is, I don't think. But we have plenty of better examples to get to. Uh, so let's talk about Liam Costa, which I'm gonna have to open his wiki page to see if I can. R- remind myself of anything interesting because Liam is like even worse than Korra at being the most boring like morphine drip of a character ever uh Liam's primary helpful traits for being interesting or not even interesting but just entertaining is that he is a lively reckless character and he'll say funny things here and there and so that that breathes through and makes him more entertaining at times and it really, really comes through when you get to his loyalty mission, which is one of the best done parts of the entire game, to the point where it's staggering and con- and confusing. Because uh, this entire game is some very, like, MMORPG content stuff, where everyone's stiff and static and standing still and just jabber-mouthing at you by having machine dialogue animations on their face while they say really boring dialogue that involves doing a fetch quest and stuff, and you're walking around an open world. So it was a massive shock to play Liam's uh, loyalty mission and encounter this like high production value thing full of like comedic timing and good writing and also like for the first and last time in the game level design that complements the mobility that they added to your character in Mass Effect Andromeda because like all that jumping and dashing suddenly made sense because you were playing a you were playing on a cargo ship of some kind that was like inverting its gravity because its its gravity stabilizers were going out of whack so like suddenly it's like now the gravity's on the ceiling now the gravity's on the wall and that's not built to be walked on so like the ability to jump up and down walls and like on and deal with the verticality was suddenly being properly respected this is off topic but I'm, I'm dwelling on it now apparently this uh and like and like suddenly the level design matched the game design which was baffling because it never really had so far but also, like, there's all these playful moments of, like, you're, you're having your, uh, your firefly scenario, essentially, where, like, it is a, it's a life-and-death mission, but people are being tongue-in-cheek and silly about it, and a bunch of funny things keep happening, just, like, with, uh, how Mal reacts in, a in, a in Firefly, where, like, he'll be, like, wearing a bonnet and, and pretending to be a woman on a stagecoach and saying some of the funniest shit while threatening people with guns. And, like, that's the aesthetic and uh, tone of stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy and Firefly that a lot of people enjoy. Uh, and suddenly, Liam's loyalty mission just goes full bore into that, and it nails it at every turn. And it's funny as shit. And I found myself wishing that an entire game by Bioware would be done in this tone, because it's more enjoyable than whatever the hell Andromeda was. And so, they were able to mine Liam's Liam's tone effectively and that that's how he behaves and so that was nice but when we talk about his character that's when it's it's, we it gets a lot harder to have a conversation like a lot harder so he was an engineering student and he joined 
he essentially joined like volunteer crisis response organizations back on Earth, like or or not not necessarily Earth, but Milky Way. I don't remember if he was on Earth specifically, but so he was a crisis response dude. So he helps people in times of crisis. It's really straightforward. <laughs> it's not much to go on there, but like it means he cares about people and he's willing to risk himself in order to save other people and help people in times of need. And he's like he's a big old like lawful good paladin awesome person. Like Liam's a great person. Good job. And every now and then he'll do something slightly reckless and take things into his own hands and so on. And there's little moments of color here and there. But being a likable person and being a good person isn't the same thing as being a, a good character. And Liam, once again, he just like lacks flaws. There's really just nothing going on, really. The worst thing he ever does in all of Mass Effect is is in all of Andromeda is that in his loyalty mission he takes on a mission without consulting with you basically and like you don't he did something brash and reckless and then he he jumped into it without fully like informing you of all the details and making sure that you're game for it which is actually a thing that happens a few times with a few different characters but it happens with him and that's his major story beat that's his major flaw is that like he didn't do the paperwork correctly and like didn't properly go through the motions of uh clearing this with you and like that's that's not a compelling reason that's not a compelling flaw really he's just he just he's just a little brash and that's it there's just like there's just nowhere to go with that and he's a primary crew member in a game that only has six crew members or six party members, which is already really low for a Bioware game, where they often have, they usually have equal or more than that. And Mass Effect games, aside from the first one, had significantly more than that, and so on throughout the franchise and their other games. Like, it's normal to have more party members than this. And now we're two party members deep, and they're both humans that help people. And one of them slightly stern, and one of them slightly playful and reckless. Like, they... they The only way to even distinguish them as characters is to use them as foils against each other. Because when you compare them to each other, you're like, oh, that's the stern one, and that's the playful one. Because they're foils for each other. But that's like their only character trait. Meanwhile, let's uh pick somebody from Mass Effect 2. Uh... Any of these characters pretty much work, honestly. But let's let's talk about Jack, which people are uh, once again is a character that people uh, have varying responses to. But Jack was a prisoner when you find her. You break her out of what's essentially like Chronicles of Riddick jail. <laughs> like she's in, she's basically in Riddick jail. When she's probably in the cell right next to Vin Diesel. She's covered in tattoos and she hates everybody and. She is actively abrasive to every character, including you. Uh, when you let her, when you set her free, she goes on a murderous rampage throughout the entire facility, uh, separate from you. you know, she's not even like, she's not like a reckless member of your party. She's not even in your party yet. She's just wiping out everybody she can and being this wrecking ball through society. And that was likely why she was in jail in the first place. Uh, and. <laughs> Uh, when she does join your crew, uh, she doesn't get along with anybody. She puts herself in the in the uh, basement, 
area, essentially. And she even actively tells you to fuck off when you go come down there to talk to her. But if you dig enough, you eventually can find out who she, uh, how she works. And one of the one of the best parts about Mass Effect Two, by the way, is the fact that uh, you have this ongoing thing with the loyalty mission. The uh, every character has a loyalty mission, and it's for a reason. Like they they did the equivalence of loyalty missions once or twice in Mass Effect One, just on by happenstance, and they did it uh, in Mass Effect. Uh, Andromeda seemingly out of obligation to just keep up that trend, even though there's no stakes. But in Mass Effect 2, you, the mission, the game's going to end with a suicide mission, and you need to everyone clear-headed and undistracted and uncompromised in, for, in a variety of different ways, and you need to get them refocused, and you need them prepped for the suicide mission, or they will likely die. And uh, if you go into the suicide mission at the end of Mass Effect and uh, 2... Without doing anyone's loyalty missions, there will be a body count, and it will be a mess, and you will permanently lose various interesting characters. But Jack's loyalty mission is that she tracks down the place that she grew up in, which is, you find out, was this this biotic facility where they experimented on children. Uh, Cerberus was experimenting on children to make them these super powerful biotics. And so, yeah, this this is a relatively edgy origin story, but it actually, I think it does largely work. Uh, so she is a result of biotic experiments from an unethical company. And what becomes interesting is, like, you knew that stuff from the get-go, more or less. But what you learn when you're in that facility is something that contradicts her own worldview about what her life is. Because for her... Nobody's ever helped her. Nobody's ever done anything for her. Everyone has always been out to get her and use her and exploit her. And so she's been going across space being this this reckless hard bitch that will not deal with anybody. And she's out on her own and she'll kill without a thought. And she'll she'll steal and she'll fuck and she'll just do whatever benefits her at any given moment. And that's more or less how she deals with things. Which already is more interesting than pretty much anyone in Mass Effect Andromeda because she's just... A shitty person <laughs> like she is just a shitty person by and large in mass effect 2 and that makes her more interesting already but what she finds out is that her memories of her childhood are all wrong in various ways uh she thought that she was singled out and mistreated and exploited and 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 and, and you can't blame her for this stuff her, her memories of the past because she was a child and she was traumatic and it's horrible. And, but what's, what, 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 what gets extra horrible is learning that she was wrong about these things because you start finding out that she was the golden child. She was the golden goose. She was the, she was the one that was up on a pedestal. She was the one, she was the only child in this child experimentation nightmare facility that was treated as non disposable. She was not expendable. She was the, actual important central figure of this entire thing and all the other children were were expendable so they all got worse treatment all the other like first of all many children i believe what it did to detail was that many of them just suffocated in the shipping crates because like when they would ship them there they wouldn't even like take care to make sure they would even survive the trip first of all but uh all the experiments that made jack more powerful they were conducted on the other kids first to see if they were safe and effective. And so they were permanently disfiguring and scarring and killing and traumatizing all of these other children with all these experiments 
so that they could use them on Jack once they were proven and tested so that she could become what she eventually became as this biotic badass because that's the type of bullshit that Cerberus does because they're a horrible, horrible company. Uh, and they're horrible. Everything about them is terrible, which is why they... But And unfortunately, the by the end of Mass Effect 3, they become this unbelievable, impossible organization as opposed to just being an evil one, which was a bummer, but fine. Uh, and so Jack... As you're going through this facility, this run-down, abandoned facility full of, like, wild animals and remnants and so on, because it's not actively manned anymore, you're going through these audio logs and these memories, and and then eventually you even encounter a person that was another stu- another another child that was abducted by Cerberus and experimented on, and and between these audio logs and documents and videos and the other person you meet you learn the truth of Jack's past, which is that it's still traumatic and horrible, but also her powers were bought by with the souls of many other dead and disfigured and traumatized children that never get to have normal lives so they can make her that good. And she didn't know any of this when she was going in. She didn't understand this. And this is a whole new fucked up focus. And like that... That is like you take you took you took an already interesting and textured character and you completely did a twist on her entire premise within the same game. And like there's so many beats here and like this this is fantastic. And yeah, you can we, we, people will talk in and out about like Jack's wardrobe and her behavior and whether she's Edgelord 9000 with her goddamn origin story and everything like that, but like that compared to Cora, compared to Liam, Look how much there was in one game. A game that was like 50% or 30% as long as Andromeda was. Look how much Jack got. A character that was one of like 10 or 12 characters. Let's count them right now, because I'm looking at them right now. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 9... Yeah. Wait, what? 8, 9, 10, 11, 12... Is that 13 characters? Was that 13 characters? That doesn't sound right. Oh, well, yeah. It looks like I'm... I'm looking at a cast of 13 characters. So if there was 13 squad members in a in a Mass Effect 2, oh right, it's 13. Uh, right, the 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 total in my head is 12, but Samara and Morinth fill the same slot, and that's why there's 13. Right. So if Mass Effect 12 could flesh out Mass Effect 12, if Mass Effect 2 could flesh out 13 characters, why can't Andromeda flesh out six? What's their excuse? They had like twice as much game, and that's a problem because f- like and and I, this is a problem because not only is it bad for storytelling to have weak characters, but one of my primary draws from the very beginning because the first the first Bioware game I played was Kotor Knights of the Old Republic on the Xbox, and talking to my crew members like I looked forward to that. Every time you did a main story mission, a ma- you finished a main planet, you would then go back to your ship, and all your crew members were in their various rooms, and, and you could have a one-on-one conversation with each one and learn more about their backstory. And it was very mechanical how they would always have more for you every time you finished a, ma- a main story mission and stuff like that. And like it was very predictable, but it was cool. Like I, Either way, I looked forward to that ritual, and it was a ritual that I replicated when I got to Mass Effect 1, where every time I finished a main story mission, you do the tour around the Normandy. Even though it has that goddamn cargo elevator, you always do that tour where you talk to every a different character, and you learn more about every single one of them every time you finish a main story mission, and that kept adding more texture and interesting details to them. 
And you don't get that here so much, especially with Liam and Korra. The most you get is Liam will will share a story about how like they because he's he's sentimental. So because he's sentimental, he is like he Liam uh, and his his family did. God, the details are lost on me because of how boring they are. But like they they secretly brought a car with them, I believe. It was either on the Andromeda mission or they shot it into space somewhere. But like they had some sentimental gesture that involved an old beat up car he used to work on with his dad or something like that. And they they brought it with them, I think, on the Andromeda initiative so that they could bring it to Andromeda and shoot it into space or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I could be making up the shooting it into space part. But like all you get is a sentimental story. Like you might get a story about the hardships of working as a relief worker and you might get a sentimental story about a car he used to work on with his dad. And that's like it. And like a sentimental story, unless you're going to have the really specific payoff, like a weirdly specific payoff of like this, of the car having a pivotal moment later in the story, which it doesn't, it's never mentioned or seen again. Uh, in fact, it's never seen, I believe. Uh, unless it comes up later, it's just kind of texture, but not a proper character beat that's relevant to the story. Which is a problem when you compare it to like someone like Rex, for example. And it's it's because there's so many more Mass Effect characters, it's tempting to mention multiple of them every time I get to one of these characters. But fuck it, yeah, let's let's go let's get through Rex right now in comparison to Liam, even though I already compared him to Jack. Fuck it. Uh Rex, just in Mass Effect One alone. In just Mass Effect One, by the way, I'm saying I'm saying Jack beats Liam, but fuck it. Uh we want, when you talk, want to talk about uh, character traits you get over time coming up later in the story, in just Mass Effect 1 alone, Rex starts off being this detached, apathetic mercenary. That's the, that's the front he puts on in Mass Effect 1, is that he's a Krogan. Krogan are generally, much like the Mandalorians, they're mercenaries. They're warlike, and they just go out and do odd jobs for money. And they're not then they're willing to get their their hands dirty and kill people if that's what's necessary, and they don't really care, and that's fine. That's what they do. And then he t- but then he starts talking more and more like like uh there's a there's there's a specific triggering moment with Rex where you you talk about the Salarians and you stumble into an accidental situation in what is the most awkward conversation ever, where you accidentally mention uh you stumble into the genophage topic. And you're like, and I don't remember the exact context of what you say exactly, where you're like, oh, whatever that thing's like, uh, we what we had was just as bad or whatever. Like, I think we you might, you might be talking about first contact with the, you might be you might be talking about first contact with the uh, with the Turians, or you might be talking about the Rachni or something like that. Just some kind of conflict. And then his response, like, "Oh yeah, is your problem causing the death of your entire race? And a thousand, and out of every thousand stillborns, one person gets born." And like, he goes on this tirade where his entire facade of being this detached mercenary completely collapses, and he just fucking bombs you from orbit. <laughs> like he says the most devastating shit and opens the floodgates to all the horrible things about the Genophage and the Krogan, and you are not ready for it when you're going into the game blind that this is just going to fucking happen all of a sudden from Rex, that he's just going to go here all of a sudden, and it's going to get really dramatic really fast. Uh, and that recontextualizes Rex. In one dialogue moment, 
everything changes for Rex, for how you see him as a character. And it's not for naught. Not only is it a major plot development for Rex himself, but it's also but it's also a major lore development development about how the genophage works and how the Krogans work, and it recontextualizes the not only the councils but especially the As- the Asari. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, not only the council races but especially the Salarians and how they are willing to deal with these kinds of problems, the Krogans and so on. And it gives texture to like l- later encounters with the Rachni. And also the cli- one of the climaxes of the story, Vermeer, is about dealing with the genophage. There is a Krogan scientist that is working with Sovereign and Saren to create this version of Krogans that can mate again. And they can break past the genophage, but they're also indoctrinated and they're slaves. And that's important because that means that that major dialogue that happened that developed the universe and also Rex's character also is set up for one of the climaxes of the game. So like on top of being and that this is why Vermeer is so memorable and so impactful is that in many ways Vermeer is the, is a character climax for various members of the party. And like it, it makes sense, for example, for Ashley to die there because Ashley dying in Vermeer is this moment of catharsis and redemption for her family line where previously she had a family member that failed in this kind of scenario and her name was shamed for it that's her redemption moment and and also here Rex can also die on this planet because when he finds out that the Krogan have a chance at coming back that changes everything for him because before he was detached, but it was it was kind of a front and that he secretly does really care about the Krogans and doesn't actually have this apathetic feeling because you realize his apathy isn't an automatic sense of apathy, but it's earned. You realize that he feels that way about the Krogan because he has tried. He's tried so hard to unite the Krogan and save the Krogan as a race, but he's failed for decades even. He's been shut down every turn, and he has given up on the Krogan. He thinks that all options are exhausted, and the Krogan are going to die, and there's nothing you can do to save them. But, Vermeer happens, and you have a way to save the Krogan. And it's fucked up, and it makes them slaves, and it's horrible. But he's tempted by it. Much like how Garrus is constantly tempted but to go into these dark territories uh, throughout the series, like Rex hears that there's a way to save the Krogan and then he hears that your plan is to blow it up. And he responds how his character should to that scenario. Which is that he responds by pointing a gun at you and threatening to kill you and you have this tense fucking showdown with uh, Ashley and Rex and Shepard, because he sees this as the one last glimmering hope that he thought was gone. And your challenge at that point is to do the impossible, which is not that impossible because you just have to max out Charm or Intimidate or do a side quest earlier in the game during his trust. Uh, but it's impossible in that Shepard is a hero. And he is better than normal people and does impossible things. So when he does the 
charm intimidate uh solution that makes rex uh uh, that talks rex down or talks saren into shooting himself later in the game that's not because like you're not supposed to interpret interpret those moments as being like oh wow it was that easy you're supposed to think that's only possible because of how exceptional shepherd is and how far they've come in their development that they could pull that off it's supposed to be hard and that's the point and you, so you have this impossible task of dealing with this Krogan patriarch, essentially, which patriarch's not a thing in their society, but that he is a patriarchal figure and that he is this major, important, influential character for their race. And he has given up on them. And he gets his last hope and he wants to grasp onto that. And he will, and he's willing to betray his own team to do so in one of the best betrayal moments of any Bioware game, really, is this moment with Rex, where he has a very real reason to do this, and he doesn't, like, he's going to kill you. He can't, so when the moment comes where he's planning on actually killing you, what happens actually is Ashley kills Rex, and you lose, you lose Rex, and Ashley kills him. And by the way, that also, This feeds back into the Ashley conversation about how Ashley is somebody who believes that while she's willing to work with aliens and she isn't necessarily actively racist against the individual aliens and everything, she does think that when it comes down to the fate of entire galaxies, entire planets or races, the aliens will look after their own first. And this comes up here where she's proven right because Rex is about to shoot you for the sake of the Krogan race, despite your allegiances. And it's exactly what Ashley thought would happen. And she's right. Just in case we missed that particular plot detail. Uh, And so you have to talk him down and you have to convince him that this is not the way to save the Krogans. And that even if something that is technically biologically Krogan survives this... They won't be Krogans because there will be these slaves to Saren and Sovereign and that this is the wrong way to do it. And you can make him see the light and convince him. And this is not a throwaway thing. Not only was the set up before with the earlier interactions with Rex and the universe and to make it a powerful plot point, but it's also a character moment for Rex because it changes him as a person. It's character development and this is important is that Rex changes course again. This moment, despite the failure that it is, despite that you do blow up this cure for the Krogans, it revitalizes Rex's hope that something can be made of the Krogan race and that they can be salvaged and and that he doesn't need to just give in to nihilism and betrayal, which fucking... Let's just remind ourselves that the first character you meet that dies in this game is named Nihilus, but okay. Uh, No big deal, just lots of fun little parallels there. Uh, Turns out that that the Krogan maybe can be saved. So in the next game, instead of being just another uh, automatic obligatory party member, like many people are, uh, Rex is not a party member in the next game. He has returned to Tachanka to lead the Krogan. And he is making progress and strides are being made. And then in Mass Effect 3, Rex returns once again, if he's still alive, to have his entire plot point be about the f- at long last being able to defeat the Genophage, hopefully, unless you shoot more than you monster, you nightmare monster, or, or the various other bad things you can do along the way. Like that, this is good storytelling. 
by the way, can you tell that Mass Effect is my, my favorite game ever made? Because <laughs> I talk about this plot, like, oh man. Ah, fuck. Doing this podcast about Mass Effect and Andromeda is making me like Mass Effect even more. Like, that? I knew that stuff about... There was things I just said that I knew about Rex and that I knew about Ashley. But analyzing them and then also contrasting them against the plot points of Mass Effect 1 are making me like Mass Effect 1 even more and realizing not only parallels and story beats that I didn't realize before. Like, I understood what happened in Mass Effect 1, but there's clever shit going on with Ashley and Rex and Vermeer that I didn't fully realize till I started talking about it today. And I've been playing this game for 10 years. <laughs> This is good writing. This is one of the best RPGs of all time. And I'm not even talking about Novaria, the planet I actually like the most. But apparently Vermeer might be a close contender in ways that I didn't entirely realize before. Because the idea that it's the fucking character climax for two different characters is so fucking good. And it is not Mass Effect 1's fault that later games kind of fucked up Ashley. Because later games should have treated Ashley better. And she should have gotten the same kind of development that Rex did. And that is not Mass Effect 1's fault. And man, Mass Effect 1, fuck, you're good. God damn it. Where are those moments for Liam and Korra, huh? Hmm? I just want to point out that all the idiot fucking Andromeda fanboys that I've had to deal with for the last, like, half a year... You guys, your go-to explanation, and I've, uh, I've, I've ended up subverting it... You guys always say that Mass Effect 2 and 3, that's where the good characters were. Mass Effect 1 is when all the bad characters were there. Everyone was just a lore explanation and had no character, so it's unfair to compare Andromeda with the Mass Effect trilogy, because obviously the characters in Andromeda just aren't ready yet. They're here to be the step one lore dump of the beginning of the franchise, and then you gotta get a whole trilogy to get good writing for some reason. Just ignoring the fact that it's an 80-hour game and they have way more time than Mass Effect 1 ever did. And but uh, and, and ignoring the fact that they aren't even lore dumps because it's an established universe and they aren't even really a conduit into it aside from Jal. Ignoring all those other things looks at, oh, looks like I discovered amazing character arcs in Mass Effect 1 that are not only good characters in their own right, but also built into the narrative of the actual arc of the game, almost like it's an elegantly, carefully uh, put-together storyline and one of the best stories written in the history of video games. Funny that. <laughs> Man, that was not in my notes. That wasn't in my notes. I was just going to compare the characters one by one with each other just to show how they're, they suck. <laughs> but I ended up uh, disproving the, the go-to argument people make where Mass Effect 1 has shitty characters. So, and so it's okay for Andromeda to have shitty characters. No, you're wrong. You're wrong in ways I didn't fully realize until I started talking about them, but holy shit, they nailed it in Mass Effect 1, and it was their first entry into the entire franchise. That game, despite being the shortest Mass Effect game ever, had to set up the entire Mass Effect universe and did the most legwork that any of the games ever did, and it also got the characters right, and the story beats right, and it integrated the story beats for the characters into the main story, because it's fucking Vermeer. And it's kind of a big deal. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> oh, that was fun. <laughs>
and obviously this is um this is a part two of not two it would turn out because <laughs> i didn't even get through the characters i only talked about two andromeda characters i gotta get through the other ones because we keep talking about other stuff and that's fine i'm having a blast <laughs> i don't know if you could tell but i'm having a goddamn blast with this and this one was even longer I intentionally made it go a little longer because I had that rant about RPGs that some people might skip and some people might not, but that was like 20 or 30 minutes, and it probably shouldn't have been, but it fucking enjoy, I guess. <laughs> so next time, uh, much like how we followed up on, uh, much like when we followed up on the Geth Telescope and stuff like that, I'll probably follow up on your guys' response to character discussion, if you have it, in the comments next time. And then we'll we'll follow through and try to talk about the remaining four party members of Mass Effect Andromeda, I think. And then maybe we'll finally actually talk about the gameplay of this game or something, which I still haven't touched on. Or even the story, really. Because there's so much to get into. This really is a Mass Effect franchise spoiler cast, with, with Andromeda being the purpose and filter for it. Because basically I'm just going to be vamping about how great the Mass Effect franchise is to show how bad... Andromeda is and I think that's important and I do think I'm right as it turns out <laughs> and I think I've posed a lot of evidence for it and people can no longer uh people can no longer no longer call me a mindless fanboy that just arbitrarily decides one is better at old is good and new is bad because fuck if I'm not putting out a hundred reasons why you're welcome to disagree with them, but you can't say my opinions are unfounded at this point, and they're going to only become more founded as we add more parts to the series, which I, I don't know how long it'll be. I genuinely don't, because <laughs> I thought, once again, I'd get through all my notes this episode, and instead I ended up talking about shit that wasn't even in my notes for most of the episode, because fucking synapses are firing and things are connecting and i'm like oh my fucking god i'm learning to respect a game i loved already even more and i'm not a, and we've been over how i'm not immune to its flaws i know mass effect 1 has janky ass gameplay and its side quests are largely like practically machine written <laughs> at times uh while some of them are really good to be fair and how liara just starts talking about a sorry reproduction out of nowhere in the most inappropriate time possible. There's a bunch of bad stuff in Mass Effect 1, but man, there's a reason why I still talk about it 10 years later. And there's a reason why Andromeda is not getting DLC. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. 